Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your also and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And yeah, it's another it's another week of uh, coronavirus TV. But this week, there's actually a lot to talk about. Hello, Noel here. Wait, wrong show. <laughs> wrong podcast, Noel. Get it together. Get it together. Uh, yes, there is a lot of TV to discuss this week uh, that is not related to Avatar The Last Airbender, which we have been discussing and are about to finish discussing over on Streaming In Place. Tears. Tears. Of course, the most important uh, TV news for us is that they announced this week that Netflix has the rights for Korra, so that'll be streaming starting in, in mid-August. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at least we'll have we'll have Korra that we can go to after, after mean, an appropriate pause. After an appropriate pause, but also I can watch Korra whenever I want because I have the entire show on Blu-ray. <laughs> well, there's that too. Well, you have the entire yeah. show of Avatar on Blu-ray too. Yeah, but I had to buy it when we started streaming in place uh, yeah. because my DVDs were like 60 miles north of me and there was no way to get them back. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. But then Netflix just put the whole show in HD like they should have done in the first place. <laughs> Uh, anyways, this week there was some TV news. The big thing is Comic-Con is happening, though it's not happening in person for obvious reasons. And you can tell that because there are no helicopters over this microphone the way they normally would be. <laughs> Thank you, Noel. I feel, I feel so much more comfortable now. Um, hopefully I will be back at Comic-Con again next year uh, with my fabulous sister. But uh, this this year they're doing Comic-Con at home. Like, do they're doing a bunch of digital, like, Zoom kind of things things and lots of announcements and videos and trailers and all of that. But uh, I have not been following it even a little bit. Um, I think I looked up because it kept showing up in my feed, like an, like a highlights of thing. I clicked on that and was like, okay, there's some stuff here. Most of it are not things that I'm all that connected to, though. So we'll see. I'm sure there will be more announcements. Mostly it was movies getting pushed back. The, the TV uh, announcements are things this week. Um, Perry Mason did just get renewed for season two. I was curious if that was going to happen, but that did happen this week. There's only a, a couple episodes left, or a few episodes left in season one. Um, but the big one, for me at least, was was Mo Ryan has a new piece uh, up at Vanity Fair, um, so centering on uh, abuse in the industry and, t- and television, specifically centering on Peter Lenkoff, who is the showrunner for um, Hawaii Five O, like the new Hawaii Five O and MacGyver, and there was another one too. Um, Hang on, what was it? Because it was a similar kind of reboot of a classic property yeah. thing. I can't think of what it was. Oh, it's very annoying. There. Oh, was it a Magnum PI? Yes. Yes, it was Magnum. Yeah. Um, which these are aggressively not our shows. But like that kind of TV is my jam. I do like yes. that kind of TV, but just these shows did not connect. And so Peter Lenkoff, for those who don't know, was the showrunner of those three shows on CBS and just a real piece of crap. Um, and uh, he was very powerful over at CBS and was only fired recently, despite plenty of um, people like reaching out to HR at his various shows at various times. Um, so surprise firings that didn't make sense if you didn't know what was going on at, at, behind the scenes uh, around like the um, like Hawaii Five-0 uh, firing their two uh, Asian-American. Well, 
Not firing. Yes. They elected to leave. Oh, electing. Um, okay, that's true. They weren't fired. They yeah. asked for equitable pay to their co-stars and were denied it. Yep. Yes. And so they then they left. They, <laughs> yes, then they then they left. That's Grace Park and Daniel Day Kim. Yeah. Arguably the two biggest stars of Hawaii Five O, despite yes. not being the main characters. Um, like literally Scott Kahn is Right, that guy who was opposite Casey Affleck in the Ocean's Eleven movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, O'Loughlin, who like has bounced around CBS project after CBS project after CBS project mm-hmm. for a while until landing on Hawaii Five-0. Um, so yeah, no, Daniel A. Kim and Grace Park were the big names on that show, arguably. Yeah, I mean, and I then, that doesn't feel like even an arguably to me. I think, yeah, yeah that's pretty much the case. And they also, just weren't the leads. They just weren't the leads. But like, it's also a show set in Hawaii, and yes. the demographics of Hawaii are majority like Asian American, or you know, and so to have the cast go from like fifty fifty for their like lead four, their core four to. All white people, uh, primarily white people in their cast was really, it was a very strange move at the time. Uh, or when, when that happened, it was like, really? They're not going for pay parity for their, all their leads? Uh huh. And then you find out some of the other things going on and behind the scenes, you're like, okay, yeah, that, that tracks. That does track. Um, uh, the, one of the things I wanted to specifically shout out was Lucas Till, who is the yes. lead on MacGyver, who talked about uh, being bullied horribly by Lenkov and really uh, subjected to a lot of body shaming and uh, causing like severe emotional and psychological distress and and um, body dysmorphia issues for him. Um, so and for him, because there were 30 sources, most of them unnamed for this piece by Mo and uh, for him to go on the record with his name with that was really uh, was brave, I think, because it's men talking about body shaming um, is still not like it's a it's a topic that women are expected to engage with in a way that men are not. Um, and women are like asked about and um, their, their experiences are sought out in a way that men's experiences with that are not. Um, so I thought it was particularly um, just terrific that he was willing to go on the record and really speak about his experiences. Uh, but it's a great piece. Go seek it out. There'll be a link in the notes. It is. No, it's really good. And the Lucas Till stuff is, I think, the thing to... One of the big takeaways from it is both the fact that he came forward with it and felt secure enough to come forward with it, uh, but also that the reaction from the studio and the network was, are you just trying to get more money mm-hmm. in response to the allegations, which um, Polly Perrett, who was on NCIS for a number of years um, and has also been vocal about the various uh, abuses within the CBS uh, network uh, also encountered the same sort of resistance in terms of thinking that her allegations were about getting more money from the network or from the studio and going, no, this is the legitimate problem that's happening. You all need to do something about it. And so the 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 fact that Mo was able to get a headline, basically a headline that the main star of the show to come forward and discuss Linkoff's abuses is a really big sign, but also for him to also discuss things that happened around the set, including to one of his co-stars, Meredith Eaton, who 
broke like her legs or yeah <laughs> was going through yeah broke her legs or something and was expected to like go through long standing processes and everything it was literally crying off camera um but the expectation uh, because all of that stuff trickles down regardless of whether the showrunners on set or not the management style trickles down really quickly so there's a lot in that piece that's worth picking apart um but it's very very good and i encourage everyone to read it it's not behind a paywall which yeah. is even the best thing. Um, I think Vanity Fair allows you like X number of articles a month. But if you don't read Vanity Fair very often, perfect. Go read yeah. it. It's great. Go seek it out. And, you know, Mo Ryan is the best. Mo Ryan's yes. great. Thank you, Mo Ryan. Uh, I just like, I miss her week to week criticism, uh, definitely, because she's, she's terrific. Uh, but yeah. I, nowhere near as much as I appreciate the long form work she's been able to do and has wanted to do. So keep it up, Mo. Um, this week we're going to be highlighting season one of Los Spookies, which is on HBO or what is on HBO. You can have see it on HBO Max right now, or if you obviously if you have HBO, they have it on uh, their um, back catalog. For like another day, another week, and then oh, I think all the HBO stuff gets folded into Max. I honestly don't know. Neither does <laughs> Warner Media. Okay. But- it's one of those weird. places. Yeah. <laughs> one of the HBO things. If you have an HBO thing, you can watch Los Spookies. <laughs> and I believe it has been renewed for a season two, yes? It has, yes. It got okay. renewed shortly after, I think, its first season finished airing. Um, yeah. But yes, it has been renewed for a second season. Who knows when we'll get it, but mm-hmm. it has been renewed for a second season. So that is, uh, that's coming at the end of the show. That's a, that's a fun conversation. Um, yeah, looking forward to that. Um, but first we're going to have a full week in TV. So we're going to keep the top here pretty short because there is stuff to talk about this week on these shows. So, uh, we'll listen to a little music and be right back with our week in TV. I wonder, wonder This week in TV, we're going to kick things off with a little Full Frontal with Samantha B, July 22nd, 2020. Then I'll Be Gone in the Dark, The Motherload, and RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, Stand Up Smackdown. We'll have our take on the finale in next week's episode. Um, then we have Jealous Marble Runs, of course, Marble League 2020, uh, Event six, uh, 7 and 8, Block Pushing and Triathlon. Then we'll run things out with Stargirl, Brainwave Jr., and Marvelous Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, As I Have Always Been. Gotta love a time loop. So first up is Full Friend with Samantha B. And the main thing we wanted to talk about was was uh, Masha Gessen's segment because they're awesome. And every time they show up on, on the show, I really appreciate it. Uh, what, what did you think? Right. I think that the general sort of vibe of this episode is really good. Like I liked their diners, drive-ins, and dives tour of states that are horribly, horribly bungling 
uh, their coronavirus response, including my home state of Georgia, uh, Brian Kemp. Um, but the big takeaway is the um, Masa, Ma- Masha Gessen uh, segment. Gessen's been on the show multiple times, uh, normally in their their air quotes um doom bunker (laughs) because gessen is a uh, journalist out of russia who has left has reported extensively on it but is also like one of those leading experts about totalitarianism and the rise of that sort of practice and how quickly that can happen so which is the main reason that they've been on full frontal as much as they have and here Gessen is hopeful and it's weird for everyone. It's weird for everyone. Samantha B doesn't know what to do. Me as a viewer, I didn't know what to do, but Gessen is encouraged by like the protests and the ways in which like even like local officials are attempting to push back against some of like the larger overreach of the Trump administration is currently engaging in, including a paramilitary force in Portland and one that is potentially coming very close to you. To a city near you. Yeah. To a city near you in Chicago um, could potentially be coming to Seattle. Mm -hmm. Um, So city near me as well. And that kind of a thing. So I think that there's a lot of like, Hopeful stuff, which is, I think is the note that they wanted for that segment, considering that there's plenty of other things that we could have all gone, wait, hang on. Some things are not good. Let's, yeah, wait, hang on. <laughs> Hold Voting. on. Voting. How do we still, still feel about this? Because the judge had to tell them, no, you can't arrest people uh, because we think they might do something, which is something the administration said this week. So, hmm. yeah. And yeah. also, like, I mean, that segment was probably taped, who knows, like, recorded either earlier this week or sometime last week. But on top of that, like, news of a USPS slowdown uh, potentially coming into place and things happening on that front as well represents, like, significant issues um, as the summer winds down and we move into whatever is passing for an election season this year. Um, Mostly... I'm waiting for everyone to start writing that it's weird that Biden hasn't chosen a VP yet. Mm-hmm. That'll happen in August. It will. Typically it happens in like the end of July. Mm-hmm. So he's like on the cusp of like being a little behind like the current norm of normally announcing either tail end of July or the very beginning of July. Um, so we'll see. There's a lot more flexibility since there are no conventions happening this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, uh, the 19th Amendment, which uh, gave women the right to vote, was ratified in August of 1920. So there's some speculation that he's going to wait till August 1st. And so, oh, that would make a lot of sense. That makes so, a lot of sense to me. Who knows? But yeah. that's a theory. It, it was yeah. it was August 18th. So he's not waiting until the. I don't think he'll wait until the actual like August 18th. Yeah. But like you know, that makes sense. I can see that happening. Um, but yes, there, it was, um, it was, it was a strong segment. Always appreciate Gessen. And I, I did kind of want with the things happening specifically, like in this past week, I did want sort of like an update, like still feel this way. Are we sure? Are we sure? Are we still this way? Um, but I thought it was a, a good counter balance and a good, like a rem- an important reminder of, of things. And so, certainly that perspective from guests and having gone through everything they've gone through with, with uh, the, you know, with Putin in, in Russia. Uh, it's a, it's an important 
kind of perspective that not many people have. So yeah, always appreciate guessing. Um, over on I'll Be Gone in the Dark, uh, we had the Motherload, which like I didn't know any of this stuff because I haven't read the book. Okay. I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Um, and so I like I I knew some of the things I knew that the book didn't get quite finished. Um, obviously this episode ends with um the the death of Michelle McNamara. And I obviously I knew that she had died. Um, but I didn't know all the stuff about like getting all of this evidence, like was it 30 boxes, uh, crates of evidence. Like they structured it well with the heist kind of element to it. Um, so I, I thought that there was some interesting stuff in here, but trying to just imagine processing, trying to write a book while also trying to, to follow this, this new information and processing all of that. I just can't imagine it. So I, I, I felt like, you know, I had some question marks about what the storytelling was doing over the past couple episodes, but I thought that this episode gave a lot of clarity to that. Yeah. Which I still sort of like this documentary so far, but I am struggling with it a little bit. And I was trying to figure out why. And I ended up stumbling, I ended up being recommended through like the algorithm. Um, an article in Bitch Media by um, S.E. Smith, who discusses in, I think, a really compelling way, uh, but very broad, but still very compelling way, about the ways in which, so far anyway, the documentary positions McNamara as this sort of um, romanticized dogged pursuer of truth um, that in turn like allows and cannot exist without some sort of like single-mindedness and dedication that then falls into the trap of drug abuse and the ways in which that kind of mental imbalance with drug that can be created through drug abuse continues to come forward. And this episode really hits that pretty hard at the end um, for obvious reasons. But it was something I was realized I was struggling with after I read this and I'll, I'll give it to you, Kate, so we can drop it in the show notes. Cause I think it's a good piece, but that as McNair becomes so consumed with everything with the case, everything else kind of falls to the wayside and what's kind of infuriating about it that was bugging me before I read the Smith piece, but then the Smith piece specifically called it out is no one seems to, at least within the confines of the documentary as it's being presented, go something's wrong Mm -hmm. (laughs) with McNamara's behavior in terms of she's taking too many drugs. um, She's self-isolating in really extreme cases and there's never a concern really that's voiced in a present day sort of situation of we tried to do this, we tried to do that. And maybe that's coming within the next two episodes, but it's really, it's really kind of, it's the tension of that is really difficult to sort of sift through in this documentary. And it really does come to a head tonally, I think, because yes, the big heist thing I think is really well edited and scored and they do a lot of fun Soderbergh split screen stuff. And there's a lot of like good sort of aesthetic stuff in there that then the counterpoint is an accidental overdose. And it's a very weird sort of tonal shift that I don't know that I particularly like. Mm -hmm. 
And so I'm struggling a little bit with it, but it's hard to figure out the ways in which like they're, they, they're being like the folks behind the scenes and everything, including Oswald um, are aware that they're doing this or, or trying to hew into this true crime mold and what they're, what they're hoping to mine out of that. So I'm still going to keep, I'm definitely going to keep watching um, in part because I'm curious to see how they tie things up regarding this. Since she did not finish the book and Oswald as well as uh, McNamara's editor. And I believe her agent were the ones who ultimately finished the book, which was a undertaking in of itself because a lot of it was still not actually very organized. Um, That I'm curious to see a large part of those ramifications of this overdose and what it means. Um, but I'm struggling a little bit with it in terms of just everyone just kind of seems to pawn off the behavior, um, which they don't hide in this either, but you immediately go, why isn't anyone doing anything? <laughs> Even without knowing what happens, it feels like there's a bad pattern emerging that unlike everything else with the, hunt for the golden state killer where you're seeking out patterns this pattern is being ignored to what it why is it being ignored i think is like the question i'm hoping gets answered in these next two episodes um am i and to and i don't want to like drag this author <laughs> into this but are is this sort of like a off 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 page sort of experience with this do you think or like what what am i just wrong no of course not um i was curious why they were hitting her dependence on anxiety meds and sleep aids so so strong because i knew that she had died and that there had been some sort of like a heart thing a little like that they hadn't know some condition that they didn't know that she had that had contributed to it. Um, I did not know that part of the, one of the factors was an accidental drug overdose. Um, And so when I found that out, I was like, oh, okay. So that's why they've been hitting this over and over again in these episodes. Um, So like, I was feeling like things, something was a little bit off. I couldn't quite place it as well. Um, But that was because I didn't realize where it was headed specifically, other than I knew that she, you know, she had died you know, in in some part of the story that had to be coming up soon. Um, So that is because of that, it, that context makes it make sense to me. And I would, but I'm also expecting that we're going to get some reflection on that, on like missed signs or um, because, you know, there's a bunch of texts on the screen from McNamara and, and Pat Oswalt, um, about you know her writer's block and her anxiety around getting the book done and deadlines and stuff like that and um him talking about you know you're gonna be fine everyone has this experience because he has experience writing a book as well and so like him connecting too strongly into what his experience was maybe and missing signs that no she was dealing with something different than than him um so i i'm expecting there to be more conversation around that in the next episode if there's not then i uh, absolutely would agree with what you're saying it, it does feel like a like a oversight if they don't address with address that especially because it it is so easy and i haven't read this article yet i look forward to reading it but um there that there is such a um overuse it is such a ugly trope of like 
dependence on drugs um, for like the 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 truth seeker right. looking into the maw of darkness and being you know being corrupted by it and ultimately falling in some way. Um, it's it, in a narrative level, it's part of why I hate the ending of Hannibal so much. Um, but the like, there's it. Yes, that is a troubling and a frustrating trope that gets repeated all too often in fiction. And so if that's something that they, that is an oversight in this nonfiction, um, then that is certainly something that would be frustrating. And given how I think, I mean, this isn't one of my favorite true crime kind of documentary series, but I do think it's put together well. And I think it's interesting. I think they're doing a good job with it overall. So this would be a quite glaring omission. Yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine that they will have they have to address it, and I, I, to a large extent, I trust Oswald to make sure that they address it, just from a star image sort of perspective. Yeah, um, because it helps him, which is a very cynical way of like approaching this, but also a true way of approaching it. I feel like, given his profile, um. Because I think that if he wasn't an executive producer, then he has this, there's another, there's a more interrogative aspect to it that would have been much more present, I think, at the forefront than it is here, as opposed to it being played out like a mystery as well, almost, Um, which is in and of itself kind of troubling, but this episode in particular, I think, really hits hard with the ways in which McNamara becomes consumed by trying to get this case uh, solved, essentially, and is increasingly having to turn to drugs to push through that and is distancing herself from everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. The bitch media piece does a better job of, I think, explaining that, and I don't want to like just read it. <laughs> um, but it's good, so I would encourage folks to read it in the show notes. Okay, although that, like like Noel said, that'll be in the show notes. Um, our next show is RuPaul's Drag Race All Stars. Their penultimate episode, Stand Up Smackdown, and the queens need to do stand up. They need to do a five minute set. And spoiler alert, guys, they actually do five minutes. No one does fifteen minutes instead by air quotes accident. Um, so we have our top four. Um, I thought this was a pretty solid episode until that terrible lip sync. You know, considering that the top three is a foregone conclusion, uh, unless Blair wins, there's no way she's making the top three because uh, the other three are all really tight and all on the same page about it. So um, considering that, I thought they actually did a pretty good job of keeping things interesting uh, throughout this episode. And that's sometimes all you need. There's the the stand-up sets are funny enough. Um especially in a season of lowered expectations, which is sort of where I'm at right now with All-Stars. Um, so I ended up actually kind of tepidly liking this one. What did you think? I think tepidly liking it is a good description for this first stand-up Smackdown, in part because it's probably the most well-constructed episode of the season so far because it gives you that sense that, wait, Blair might... Blair might be able to squeak this out because of the really strong uh, dress rehearsal that they have with Ross Matthews and Jane Krakowski. And can we just like, oh, Jane Krakowski, so good. Oh, so good. 
just really, really good in this. Um, really great guest judge, and they should bring her back if they can. Um, her and Rachel Bloom, just bring them both back on the same episode and just watch mm-hmm. everything just go great. Um, and also watch Rachel Bloom probably lose her goddamn mind, uh, <laughs> which would also be amazing. Um, anyway, so I think that setting that up works really, really well. And then you just watch Blair completely crumble uh, during the actual set, just like it's a disaster. And it's not a disaster in the editing. It's a just an outright disaster without mm-hmm. any editing to punch it down, basically. Um, which you had mentioned that like they sort of punched up um, Shay's um, set to a certain well, degree. Well, a- allegedly. Allegedly punched up Shay's. Yeah, I don't. Um, I haven't seen the unedited thing or anything. I've only seen the episode. But there are people online who claim they were there for filming and stuff, and that got punched up a bit. So I, th- I think in that regard, the episode does a what has become a good job for this season. When in fact, is sort of like the baseline for what we expect from Drag Race. Um, but the sets are generally, I think, pretty good overall, um, which. Also is not surprising, however, because Jujubee's funny. Cracker's supposed to be funny anyway. That's Cracker's whole deal. Um, and Shay, regardless of what they do in the editing, comes off as relatively funny in this. Um, but yeah, no, it's a foregone conclusion even before the episode aired that we saw that we went, Blair's going to go home because Blair, as delightful as Blair is, is not funny. <laughs> yeah. This is not um, her challenge. This is, this is not her challenge. And she should have leaned in harder to like, maybe like a persona riff on herself as opposed to um, going for like actual standup. Um, remind me about the, um, the runway looks for this episode, because for the life of me, I can't think of what they were. <laughs> the runway looks, it was category is uh, freak out. Get your freak out. Oh. Thank you. And Jujubee looked fabulous. <laughs> Jujubee looked fabulous. I really liked Crackers. Uh, mutant Plague Doctor. Like, thing. I mean, the odds of that, right? In 2019, Just, coming up with the, like, in the, the fall of 2019. Yes. Doing, like, let's do a Plague Doctor look. <laughs> it was really great. Um, listeners, Kate and I got into a small disagreement over text message after I um, texted her with, why is Blair's freak costume so lazy? I and don't I really like it. like it. You know what I thought was entertaining though is that after uh, this aired, I was watching the pit stop with with Bob the Drag Queen, who you know is hosting this season, and it was I think Monet was on this uh, okay. this season this this episode, and they were in the same places that you, that you oh, and I were. Okay. Because I think it was Bob really liked Jujubee and Blair. And Monet's mm-hmm. like, you're ridiculous. Obviously, it's Jujubee and Cracker. And the other two are not good. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I was enjoying that uh, that parody between the two of us. Right. Because like I, I also agree that Shay's, despite really good makeup, I think Shay's makeup is really incredible. I think both of their outfits are bad. Um, I did not like either of them. Um, both of them felt like really lazy, furry sort of things that I didn't care for. Um, so I was, I was very disappointed by both of them with it. And luckily this is Shay's to lose. So they, they get to skate by. 
Um, whereas Blair was going home no matter what. Yeah. Even if you had the best freak look, mm-hmm. you were going home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the finale, because um, as we as we record it, Noel, you know, hasn't been able to see it yet. I have, um, I think that they like the standard for the performance is it's like, it's solid. It's good. They do a good job, but the runway is so good guys. And there's a lot of smart choices in how they structured it that I really appreciated. I, I had a lot of fun with the finale. So I'm looking forward to talking about it next week. Um, the overall season I think is going to be really helped by this stretch at the end. Because, you know, I, I thought they did a, a good job, all things considered, with their improv, compared to at least what other seasons has happened in improv. That's always a hit or miss. And then they had the Snatch Game of Love, which had those two to three really good performances that really buoyed the rest of it. Then they had the Backyard Ball Challenge, and we always appreciate a ball challenge. And then they went into a stand-up comedy challenge, where at least a few of them did a good job. And then into a finale that leaves a, a positive taste, like a good a good, good taste in, in the palate. So I think like the structure of the second half of the season does a lot to really help the overall... Um, impression of the season even and and like we have a few episodes at the beginning with the challenges weren't good and the performances aren't good enough um that really helps to lower those expectations so that the end of the season can raise them back up i do think that a final three of ggb cracker and shay is a pretty solid final three though so are you excited about the finale i'm as excited as i can be about the finale given the season (laughs) um yeah Despite, like, I think you're right that the show picked up a little bit of steam towards the end, which is really necessary going into the finale, but I'm also just like, this has just been a very lackluster season overall, so it's hard to be too excited, and it's also hard to be too excited when, if Shay doesn't win, it'll feel weird. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. See, but I, yes, because they've really been, like, the narrative has been driving towards that in a very distinct way. Also, I kind of want Jujubee to win because yes. just Jujubee's amazing. I think is much better TV than Shay is. <laughs> yes. I agree with that. And I and Shay's great. I love Shay too. But is better TV. Um and she's also really good and also has come in in the finale both of her seasons. And so as the show keeps making such a deal about Shay getting so close and losing and never mentioning that jujubee has been through the same thing twice. It's really frustrating. She, she's mentioned it a couple times, but the producers haven't mentioned it. Rue hasn't mentioned it. Like it hasn't come up uh, other than jujubee being like, by the way, guys, that narrative you're building for Shay, me too, but times two, yes. come on, throw me a bone. Um, it, it, It's been a little frustrating as a, as a viewer. So Shay has recency bias and that's yeah. the entire thing happening there with poor yeah. jujubee. Yeah. Well, also, you know, they want, they're going to have Shay win. Yes. <laughs> so also Shay deserves to win. I, I think each of these queens have done a good enough job in the recent episodes that a strong case can be made for them winning. Yes. Um, so lesser which, extent cracker. Lesser extent cracker. But crackers won, but meh. That, that's a sign of good editing and good construction of your season more than anything else. But yes. Yeah. These queens have the goods. Don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah. Anyway, so we'll talk about this more next week with the finale. But for now, it's time for some marble runs. So we have Marble League events seven and eight, block pushing and triathlon. I was I, I enjoyed the block pushing quite a bit until we got to the triathlon, and I was like, 
I really dig the triathlon. So what did you think of these two episodes? I enjoyed walk pushing because air quotes, there's a lot of strategy around it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, it's mainly just luck of the draw and physics working with the marbles, whether or not they manage to push those blocks. Um, But also, I think one of the best things, especially with the block pushing, is that there were so many like records set, like one after another in that, that it was legitimately very exciting. (laughs) And I... It was it was fun watching that, and I think especially since you this was your first time seeing block pushing, you got to see like the good block. Pu- what what helped make good block pushing, which was always having that last marble have enough momentum to push it Newton's cradle style and the block enough to really get somewhere. And so it was very exciting to watch that, but. It, it always is. I like block pushing, but you are correct. The triathlon was a great deal of fun, even if my Minty Maniacs did very poorly. Yeah, they didn't make the first elimination, which was unfortunate. Um, but the Arrangers made it to third, listeners, which puts them in a solid for now first yes. place in the Marble League. But you know these things can change quickly. So, you know, I'm not getting overconfident. Uh, having the sand into the circuit into the underwater is such a great way to do swim, bike, run. <laughs> um, yes. You're like, I, I love it. It's in a, obviously in a different order. You end with swim. But uh, I like the creativity. But I also like that they didn't shout that out in yes. the in the episode um yeah it's just i'm having so much fun with marble league and obviously listener our listener marcus over on streaming a place he's uh, rooting for team galactic so if there's anybody else who's listening who's actually following this and you have a team you're rooting for please reach out and let us know because having some having another team that i can like root for as like a sub tier to my team is making some of these heats even more entertaining yes. um, when when neither like the hazers or the minty maniacs or the arrangers are in i can be like go galactic you know yeah. so i had the same experience when i was watching it because i was just like oh galactic's doing really well i bet marcus is very happy oh no <laughs> didn't quite make it <sighs> devastating it real close yeah. listeners if you're not following this galactic got eliminated on a 100th of a second behind yeah 100th of a second talk about yeah. a photo finish yeah, it, it was it was rough. Um, yeah, it was rough. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, Hazers kind of did okay in mm-hmm. this. I mean, they came in first. Yeah, but they were just so middle of the pack in the actual rankings that it didn't really matter. Well, it's um, that they're starting to turn things around. Hopefully, can they maintain this momentum in the next challenge in the next event? That's the question. Yeah, and what is the next event, by the way? Can you tease that for us? It's um, it's a type of thing I'm not familiar with. All I know is it involves a sand run and bumps or something. Yeah, so uh, thanks to listener Marcus for um, telling us. Um, it's a mogul race, um, and mogul skiing is that freestyle skiing where they're going over the bumps mm-hmm. real fast. Um, and so now we're going to see this with marbles and i'm very excited about this because i have not seen this event before um i don't think that they've done it before so i'm really excited to see how this works um because it should be a lot of fun and then after we will also this week get the um five meter sprint which is also which is also pretty exciting because it's five meters of intense speed (laughs) 
can't do 100 meters with marbles. It would just take too long. It would take too long. That's not that's not <laughs> good. Um, okay, well, we look forward to more of that. S- still having a lot of fun with marble runs. Uh, next up, we have Stargirl and Brainwave Jr. And uh, listeners, Noel, uh, I was wrong. I was very wrong. I was so intrigued um, to find out that they're like, oh, no, they are committing to this Henry definitely... So, like solicited the the topless photo from Yolanda and spread it around the school. He did actually do it because I thought that they were building up a Cindy did it thing. Um, so when they were committing to that in this episode, I was like, huh, okay, I'm very shocked. Well, it's because I didn't expect, I've given you listeners, I've given you time to skip ahead if you're not watching. I didn't expect that they were going to kill him in this episode. Uh, they just, they did that. And it's a superhero show. He can always come back. We'll see what happens. We don't see a body. We just see him get collapsed under rubble after his father says he'll kill him. So I, I feel like that's close enough. But, um, wow. Yeah, there's just a lot in this episode, including them killing Henry um, or appearing. To, yeah, it's just, it's very, I, I was legitimately really kind of surprised by it. Um up to even when uh, it turned out that uh, Brainwave Senior had regained his memories because listeners, he had amnesia set back basically to the point before his wife died, um, which is generally the episode here considers a triggering action for him going whole hog evil, Mm -hmm. um, even though he also killed his own wife. Um, The episode is a really good... Uh, fake out and making you think it's Jordan. Uh, and there's so much like the season, ha- the series has done so much work to very easily make you go, Jordan did it because of everything else he's done this season. Yeah. Um, that because of the, find- the child he killed and then the, the family he, he killed. killed and, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, that whole concept, you're just like, you immediately buy into it. And so there's just a number of really good twists and turns in this episode of, wait, nope, nope, this this is not the show you thought it was real quick. It's still Mm -hmm. kind of fun and peppy, but this is not the show you thought it was. And I really appreciate that. So these kind of narrative twists and tonal twists um, work really, really well. And I think having that final confrontation with between the two brainwaves is just legitimately kind of exciting. Um, And a good signal because one of the things that I think the show did a really good job of right at the start was establishing brainwave as very dangerous. And this episode kind of teases, he won't be, don't worry about it. And then, then they're just like, Oh no, he's, he's back all the way. And he just killed his own son. Right. Yeah. Um, so there was all of that. So anything you have on that is great. Um, also talk to me about everything with Amy Smart and becoming aware of things and then being ready to vamoose and then maybe not being ready to vamoose and then emailing Courtney's dad from her work computer, which my partner had major problems with. (laughs) Yes. Yes, there is that. Um, and that leaving was... her computer unlocked at work. Yes. Um, there are several issues here. The first thing is the show uh, won me back over by having her immediately say, get out of my house. Yes. You've been li- you lied to me about my daughter being in a car accident. Get out of my house, which was great. And then not 
bringing up the okay, but what about Mike of it all and having Mike bring up the okay, what about Mike of it all and make a choice with that, which I thought was very well done. And then they have her um, have the presence of mind to record Jordan's parents, creepy, creepy parents. Um, so creepy. And then they, you know, have, they, they commit to Pat being like, if this costs me my marriage, so be it. You guys have to be safe. And, and Barbara immediately saying, no, we're, we're leaving. Ta- You're telling me this town is filled with supervillains who are trying to kill us all. We're leaving, obviously. Like, so they do all the things that Barbara should do. She does. Um, except for emailing from her work computer. But I can buy the idea that she just has a email. That she accesses, and if she accessed it on her phone, it would be using the work Wi-Fi, so they'd be able to track that anyways. Like, I'm okay with that. And for me, like, it's on the screen. It's just a convention so that we can see that it's arrived. So, like, I, if they have someone, like, stumble upon her computer and find it, then, you know, mea culpa. Definitely, that was dumb. If if it's just so that we know that she's gotten an email and we can go, ha, 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 fair enough. I'll give it to him. Fair enough. Um... So I thought that all of that stuff was handled really well. I thought that Courtney's uh, preoccupation with uh, Barbara and Pat's, well, her mom and Pat's uh, relationship, distracting her and prompting her to make foolish choices really made sense and worked. Uh, same thing with Rick and his uh, his basically him not being able to save Henry because he was so focused on Solomon Grundy that he wasn't thinking. Um, you know, we've now had these these characters experience two of their schoolmates deaths um one right there and this will have to have significant impact on them a significant impact on them so um we'll see what happens next we also got to talk about i want to hear your thoughts on the barbara of it all but also we got to talk about we get to see dragon king's face and yeah (laughs) well done well done show very good and really earning that don't make me take my mask off line from the previous episode so what did you think there's that but there's also like courtney's response everyone's response to it and going nope (laughs) (laughs) shoot it run away (laughs) yeah exactly um but that also reminds me that um even though she's basically just behind the door and only visible through that window the woman playing Cindy is so deeply, deeply committed to the bit in that sequence of let me out, let me out. I want to kill her. Let me out. Let me out. Dad, you got to let me out. I, I I, have to kill her. I want to kill her. Daddy, how... let me kill her. It's, it's Meg DeLacy. <laughs> and it's so good and really, really funny, but also the unhingedness of it all works so well in that sequence that I really, really like it. Um... And yeah, uh, Rick just being like, yeah, no, I'm going to pry open this door and beat up Solomon Grundy. And I'm just like, oh, sweet no, you baby. Are. You are not. saving you in a big way. Yeah. First of all, Solomon's too expensive right now for mm-hmm. everything else that's happening. So he's not in this episode. Secondly, you are not beating up Solomon Grundy. Superman can barely beat up Solomon Grundy. You do not have a chance of beating up Solomon Grundy. Um so that, but watching him like peel away that door and Beth just being like, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is not what we're here for. What are you doing? Um, stop. Don't do this. Um, was really great. The Barbara stuff I think is easily some of the best stuff the show's done. Um, mainly because it's so grounded in exactly how 
we feel like Barbara should respond to all of this nonsense, but also the ways in which she kind of realizes that there's something off about everything and follows that instinct to a certain extent. And I really like that. So I liked all of that. I like the Amy Smart stuff. Just like Amy Smart getting to do something is a nice change of pace on this show. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I liked that, but I also liked the Mike stuff and Mike being like, yeah, no, I'm going to go with you. Sleep over. And I'm going to sleep in the car. And it's just like... When Pat goes off and doesn't even like go like, hey, Mike, by the way, I need to go check on Barbara. Your sister's going to watch out for you. Like, I was just like, this is why it doesn't feel like he is Mike's dad. Because yeah. you wouldn't leave a kid sleeping in a car by himself without, like, what? Yeah. So... It's it's all wonky and weird, but I appreciate that the show's trying to figure that out a little bit, even if it's a little close to the end of the season. Hopefully they can, provided Mike makes it out of the season, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> who knows um, at this point, uh, that they can figure that out in season two. Um, yeah. And I'm excited about, um, I think, what, based on the promo next week is with... Um, not a big reveal about the janitor because it's pretty clear who the janitor is. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the very least, we'll hopefully get to see the janitor like in full action. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. And the backstory of the fact that Stripesy mm-hmm. knows him. Yeah. The, uh, the thing I also really liked about all the Barbara stuff and with that Amy Smart was definitely playing really well is this, like this thawing of some of this because she realizes I also got my daughter into this somewhat by not yes. being honest with her about her father. Cause I thought yes. I was protecting her from her deadbeat piece of crap dad, but by not giving her answers, I didn't realize, but I should have realized that she needed, she has built this whole like fantasy about who her dad was. And that's partially on me. Uh, yeah, and that's so that, is, that is just in the performance that's in like the little moments of reaction. And I, that's clearly what they're, where they're going in the next episode with this. But um, I thought that that was also really smart for like a reason that she would also be more tempered in her response to Pat and to Courtney. It's mm-hmm. a really good point. I like that. Yeah. Um, well, let's move on to our last episode, which is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, their, their, their time loop episode, as I have always been. And I feel pretty strongly, anytime you do a time loop episode, it has to at least be one of two things. It has to be really, really fun and good. Mm-hmm. And then if it's not going to be, like, exceptionally funny and, like, the show firing on all cylinders on a comedy and a- or action level... Um, with one or two moments of character, you have to at least come up with something creative and original that other shows haven't really done in the time loop arena. And that is increasingly hard to do. Yeah. But I think that S.H.I.E.L.D. pretty much did that with this episode. I cannot think of another show that has been able to do quite what they did in this time loop with the Coulson stuff because he's robot and he doesn't get turned on every time, right? Like that that was such a creative twist on the format to make it a two-person time loop, but only sometimes. Uh yeah, I, I really like this episode. It's really good and like no surprise it wins my week in TV just to get ahead of that. Mm-hmm. Um no, it's really, really very good. 
And for the reason you just said, and I think for the other thing, hitching my wagon to that, that horse that you've let out of the barn is that this episode does both of those things of being very funny and then having some good action and then having big dramatic stuff in the episode. And it's just this big episode that does all the time loop tropes right um down to even twisting it slightly with the end of how they get out of the loop resulting in a sacrifice which is not normally normally what happens in a time loop sort of situation since it's about resetting and here it's not about resetting it's just about getting out of the loop but you're still in the situation that you find yourself um which i think is also a really good sort of sort of like just a little turn of the screw on the concept there um so i really liked it but yeah i feel like we have to talk about clark greg because he's so good in this episode Mm -hmm. um just capturing the rage and built-up frustration and anger of being an lmd in this episode that has been kind of there, kind of boiling, um, simmering, and then it just boiling over here is really, really great. And Greg just goes for whole hog. And I really like the show giving him that space, but also them giving Colson that space to be like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm tired and I don't want to be this LMD and I don't like this. And I mean, just all of this is bad and I'm angry about it. Like I'm legitimately angry about it, which we normally don't get to see Coulson angry. So having him be angry and then being angry in this context, I think just changes so much of that dynamic. And then having it be Daisy be the one that has to bear the brunt of that and then bear that burden as well. I think also just heightens everything given their whole relationship. So how did, how did, everything that Greg and then the Colson stuff play for you. I thought it was really good. And for me, like one of the things that if you can do makes uh really elevates a time tra- uh, traveler to sorry, time loop episode. If you can find a way to do it is to have it, the time loop have lingering and specific effects. Yes. Um, and this one does obviously with the ending, um, but also it's going to, with Greg, with, with, with yep. Coulson, like it's going like the, the specific trauma of watching everyone die over and over again and knowing that, yes, in the best possible situation, I will watch all these people die slowly over time. Like, like, so yes, the, you know, everybody watches people die, but he will definitely outlive all of them. Having that conversation that you could only really have in relation to Enoch about that experience. Cause no one else, you know, and, and, and they do a little, pay a little lip service to that with Daisy. Like, yeah, it sucks watching people you love die, right? I've watched you die like three times. Um, like, so they, they, they engage with that in a, in a, in a smart way and in an effective way. But having that just feed into the larger, you know, lack of choice around being an LMD. He didn't say, bring me back. I'm not, I'm, the fight's not over. You know, he went, walked off into the sunset with May to be done. And then yes. now it's not again, because the show keeps getting renewed. Um, so having... not this time, they, <laughs> all the actors were very clear. We will come back for this. If we don't have to do this again. Well, all the actors, hmm. Yeah. Not Andy Kastiker. Hopefully he'll be around soon. Cause there's only like four episodes left, but, um, 
anyways, the that is clearly going to pay off in a big way in by the, at the end of the season. Not exactly sure how, of course, but that was really potent because of the performance of, of Greg and also the writing. So uh, the, that takes us to the other lingering effect, which is Enoch. And I'm still frustrated by that because for, it's a very effectively done thing. If you're going to kill off Enoch, this is a great way to do it. Gets a great death scene. The actor's really good. Um, so good. Very moving and, you know, chooses to sacrifice himself to save the team without a second thought. It's very, you know, you know, it's very impactful. All of that. But it, I'm irritated at the show for having this scene when they didn't give two craps about Enoch in the previous, the earlier part of the season when he, they kept jumping without even trying to find him and leaving him behind for, like, decades. Uh, and only Deke seemed to notice or care. Like, that's... They needed to pay more lip service to that to make him actually feel like part of the team um, or at least, or show them feeling guilty about it. And maybe that'll be in the next episode. Um, so that's one thing. And then also it's too convenient for the, for the fact that he has to die. Um, and the only reason he has to die is so that we can have a dramatic moment, not because it makes sense. And the reason it can't make sense is because we don't know why, but the notion that, oh yeah, this one part will fit perfectly in exactly right as if it was designed that way, as long as you kill your friend, you know, like it's just so, it's so convenient. They don't want you to think about it. Um, and maybe there is a larger reason that we will find out eventually, but because like that just, it struck me wrong as like, well, what can we do to make people cry? Let's make them cry now. It just feels mean. Um, so if you're going to do it, they did it well. But uh, I'm not great on killing off characters just to have an emotional gut wrench. There is a narrative convenience to that, even in the moment of the matter of factness of him just tearing out his time heart or whatever it was. Um, which is a great scene. Like, it's legitimately a great scene, I think, mm-hmm. um, because of, again, how understated that actor is with how he plays Enoch and the, the way that is edited. And we should note that Henstridge uh, directed this episode. Yeah, she did a really good job. Uh, she did a very, very good job. And their editor also did a really, really good job with this episode as well. Um, that they're, that it is too convenient and it is very much a sort of we want to have this scene and we want to talk about mortality uh, since so much of this is about outrunning that both as like an organizational institution, but also as just they're going to die and to bring Coulson's whole deal into really stark relief. Um, I agree with you also regarding the fact that there hasn't been time to unpack the whole, we left him behind for so long type of thing that the show just, doesn't fully interrogate in a way that feels satisfactory. And I very much agree with you uh, that it's a problem with the whole sequence of what ends up happening there. Um, And it falls into that pitfall of the ever faithful robot type of thing um, in sci-fi narratives of going like, well, yeah, you've taken me for granted, but I will do this one last thing to save you organic meat bags. And Coulson. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, if um, Coulson had been left behind, yeah. the first thing they did when they landed was like, we got to go find him, right? And yes, he's also exactly. a robot. Yes. 
Yeah. So it's a weird sort of double standard that's in place, but also speaks to where Enoch fits into like their team hierarchy to a certain degree. Um, but at the same time, this episode also reveals still no one likes Deke. Is Deke dead? Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no one likes Deke still. Um, well, I, I like that. Do we care? It's going to be satisfying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that whole montage of Enoch killing everyone over and over again is also a very good sort of like time loop thing that's mm-hmm. just escalation of rewards in that sequence is just mind-boggling great um anyway yeah the actor um, who plays enoch is joel stoffer and he's really good in this yeah thank you um yeah no he is so i think all of it is just it's a really strong episode of shield probably like overall um but you also watched a lot of the show more recently <laughs> than mm-hmm. i have but i think that even the niggling issues aside of not doing well enough by Enoch in terms of his relationship to everyone, especially considering so much of his relationship is tied to Fitz, who is not present, but is omnipresent in this episode, um, is frustrating. Um, but Fitz's absence is just lingering over too many things here in this season, and it's starting to become a little suffocating from how Gemma's behaving. Um, Gemma? No. Yeah. Gemma. How's Gemma behaving to how Enoch's behaving to how Deke's behaving to a lesser extent, how Mac is handling things because Turbo's not here. Um, and it's becoming, it's becoming a little too much to bear not having that, which is why I'm hoping that like that realization of when the implants shut down is not going where I'm assuming it's going, but it's probably going exactly where I'm assuming it's going. <laughs> yeah, that's got to mean that he's already dead. Yeah, no, it has to mean that he's already dead. Um, but and it just gets to the issue of like, Henstridge has confirmed that we are going to see Fitz. Mm-hmm. She did not specify how or what capacity. Or when. Uh, or, or when. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's basically in my brain, it's very much like, it's a video recording of some kind because that actor was never on set while they were filming um, this season because he was off doing a movie while they were shooting this season or something, apparently. Um, So it's just like, he's not in this season. And the ways in which they've navigated that, I think have generally worked well, but in this episode in particular, it was, it was a lot to kind of work through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the reveal that this is their last like adventure as a team really points to the timeline being rewritten. I saw um, some people speculating that Coulson is going to uh, find a way to communicate to Fury, not to bring it back to life. Mm -hmm. Therefore, like, and and therefore preventing the whole series from happening. Um, And then we'll end the show with uh, the seeing where where the characters are in the different timeline. Um, and like Deke in the future and all these different things and, and um, Max parents visiting his parents in the nursing home or whatever um, retirement community, that kind of a thing. But, you know, I hadn't thought of that idea, but when I saw that popping around some, some speculation was like, Oh, that would track real well with everything we've been seeing this season for Colson. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I know that they already like exist in the MCU, um, but I really want Colson to become a watcher. 
mm-hmm. um, which I think would just be the best thing that Coulson could do. But watchers already exist, um, so don't. I don't. don't we'll see. I'm excited to find out though. It, it was a, after some some less than thrilling episodes. It was a really strong outing for the show. And yes. you've already answered the next question, which is yeah. what Winter Week TV Shield. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna split it between Shield and Star Girl. Okay. Um, because That's especially and, and we didn't shout out the but that that last scene with Henry was really good, really good delivery, great final line, great memorable moment. Um, yeah. Really, so there, there's a. I'm really excited about the potential there, and you know me, I love a, I love a time loop. Um, any thoughts on our like? There's different shipping names, but I think the one that Henstridge appreciates the best is Susie, so I'm going with that. And any thoughts on our our Susie moment? I liked that moment, and I think it worked. Um, and I think that um, the fellow who reviews um, Shield over at TV Club, who you filled in for, um, yeah, Alex, Alex. Alex made a really good point about Susan knows exactly who he is and what he's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And that whole idea of he supports people is just registers real hard with everything that Susa does, even down to this show, but also down to like agents of shield very obviously. So that whole sequence I think plays so beautifully and the ways in which that really rewards Daisy's whole character arc. Um, I think works really, really works really well. So I really, really liked it. I thought it, I thought it was a nice moment um, mm-hmm. between the two of them, but also it made me a little sad because I still ship Susa and Peggy, mm-hmm. even if I, also, I know, right? <laughs> I I also very much ship Steve and Peggy. So <laughs> it's a very difficult position for me to be in. <laughs> yeah, I also kind of ship Daisy and Deke. Um, uh, but no I, one he, likes Deke. Kate, stop! No, I, I like Deke. Deke. I, no, we I like Deke, Deke too. <laughs> he found himself in the eighties, and we're like, yeah, go enjoy some of that Coke that I never see him drinking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm conflicted on all that, but I thought it was a nice moment. Uh, you know, it was a good way to do the the time loop kiss that won't matter, so they do it. You know, yeah, kind of. A, you know, and the notion of taking a loop. I liked that there was a good amount of stakes too. We, we yes. didn't mention that, but the idea that. When Daisy dies, she loses her memories. And so then Coulson has to wait for her to figure all this out again was a good complicating factor for why she could die, but it was really bad if she did. Um, so yeah, there was, there was good, it was good handling of all of that. So yeah, it's fun. The, the, the person who wants to be the support staff, right. That who wants the assistant job, because what they're really good at is organization and helping other people succeed. And it's very fulfilling for the, like find someone they believe in, like, and they are, they're the pepper pots, right. Brilliant, hardworking, uh, great on their own, but they prefer to be backstage. They're tech support, right. They're the, they're the theater crew. Um, That job is often not respected enough. So I like the idea of Sousa as that. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And also, a lot of times the people who most need that are the people who couldn't possibly understand finding that fulfilling because yes. they need to be up front, right? That's what they find thrilling and fulfilling and what they excel at. So if you can, and Daisy absolutely fits for that. So yes. um, having, pairing, like connecting them on that level, it really is is terrific. Whereas, whereas Carter, right, Peggy, could very much be either. Um, so... It's that's an interesting thought. So yeah, that Alex McLovin guy is pretty smart. 
Um, okay, that will wrap up our week in TV. Now we're going to take a break and come back with our season spotlight on Los Spookies season one. We'll be right back after this. That was a trailer for season one of Los Spookies, which is an HBO show uh, that had a, a delightful uh, first season last year. The It's six episodes, each a half hour, and it is a combination Spanish language and English language show um, following a group of like the, the for those who don't remember the the tagline, the like the the, the log line is what if Scooby-Doo, but you're following the people putting on the pranks and they aren't trying to scam like they're doing a business where they they put on the scooby-doo pranks um and let's do that uh and it's, so it's it's silly and fun i will be honest i remembered it being better than right, you than watched it was. some of this last year yeah i watched the first couple episodes and so i fu- ultimately f- thought it was slighter than i had remembered i had built it up a bit in my mind but i ha- ended up did end up having a lot of fun with this and i am looking forward to the second season uh it's very just like left of center with with its humor so if you watch the first episode and you're like uh, then it's probably not for you but if you watch the first episode and go, oh, this is okay, This I see what they're doing, then you will enjoy the whole season. So I'm curious, Noel, where did you fall on this one? No, I very much agree with you that um, it is, if you don't like the first episode, you don't need to continue because the show is very clear about what it is from the very beginning. And that tone carries itself through the rest, the remaining five episodes. To a certain point, it even gets a little weirder than it in the first episode because, listeners, there's a internal water demon that really wants to watch the king's speech. It's very specific. It, it is, yeah, no, it's 
It's very weird, Kate. It's very weird. Um, so there are like those elements in the show throughout um, that you just go, right, right. Even some of the other weird stuff that is in the very first episode and you go, where is this going? And it does end up going someplace. But there's a number of like little weird tangents that the show takes that I find delight in. So I ended up enjoying this a good bit. I do agree with you that it's slighter than I think I was anticipating. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also not a knock against the show that it's slight because I think there are a number of just solid gags um, and weird sort of almost like parodies of magical realism runners that exist in the show that I don't care. Um, that it's as a little, uh, that it's as fluffy as it is. Um, and I mean fluffy in like a cloud sense. Uh, this is a very good cloud of a show that I enjoy a great deal. Yeah. No, it, it's, um, so they've got their different characters. Uh, they're the four main characters. Um, and there's some recurring threads and villains and, and all of that. But really, most of the time you're just watching them uh try to work their way towards I don't even know because a degree the, of legitimacy yeah 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 there's no way that this business that they have though can actually pay them a living wage so yeah. like you're not supposed to think about that I think uh because I like during one of the episodes I was just thinking how much would they have to charge to actually pay for just their time like like a, like a minimum wage their time and the and the equipment, you know, and it's like there's not there's no way that people could afford that. <laughs> I know but how much hey, it costs to actually pay hey, get paid for your time. They've got that monthly they've got that monthly check coming in from that tourist town. So I mean that's that's a good subscription model that they should maybe invest further in. Oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Uh, and there's a lot of fun. Don't, don't get me wrong, but but you're you're really not supposed to pry too deep into some of it and just sort of delight in the silliness. Um, and for that, I think my favorite is all of the magical realism around our chocolate prince yes. and who can look into to reflections and see anything, I guess, and has the internal water demon and has very convinced he's got a dark, troubled backstory, but really doesn't. He just lives with his parents. Um, did you have a character you most enjoyed or connected with? Well, you were talking about Andres, who is played by Julia Torres, who is one of the co-creators of the show and did a stand-up special called My Favorite Shapes that HBO was really pushing on me uh, pretty hard last summer, um, right before it premiered, which we should note is produced by Fred Armisen and Lord Michaels, who also produce Los Spookies. And Armisen's actually one of the co-creators, uh, along with Torres. The other co-creator is Ana um, Fabrija. Fabrizio, I'm butchering that, and I apologize, who plays Tati, who is my favorite character on the show. <laughs> I love Tati so much, Kate. Um, Tati, listeners, um, is aimless and weird and argues that she's living at all times at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the end of the season, which is the single best description for everything that's happening to her in this show that I have ever heard for a character. But again, feeds into this kind of magical realism sort of perspective of things. But she takes a number of odd jobs throughout the course of the show, including breaking in people's shoes, keeping track of their steps, <laughs> playing with buttons, 
um, being the second hand on a clock tower. Mm-hmm. Just all this really bizarre, perfect stuff that I think is hilarious. And her whole sort of just real underplay of like, this could be very weird. And it's made weirder by the fact that she just underplays everything to a deadpan is really, really great. She, Tati is Ursula's sister and Ursula is sort of the no nonsense member of the group. Let's get paid. Let's get paid. But it's also sort of the one that makes sure everything works as well. Um, and I, I really like both of them in general. Um, theirs is weird. Ursula and Tati really have like the only misstep, I think, in the show, which is the multi-level marketing scheme run by what's his name? Um, Mm -hmm. who I can't remember, but he's on search party right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's the, it's the only misstep to the whole thing because it's such a tired joke and they can't find anything really fresh to do with it. But the end results of all of it are still really funny that I don't care. Um, so Tati's my favorite. Um, but we should also talk about Ronaldo, not, not Reynaldo, because his mother forgot to put the Y on the birth certificate, which again is such a just specific joke that I love it. I just really, really love it. But he's sort of the heart of the whole team and that's one of the things I actually really like about the show is the ways in which everyone gets a role and we get a whole episode in which everyone realizes they they need one another to function, um, which is a very pat sort of thing for this kind of a story, but it's still, it's still really good. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Um, They, they balance each other well and they do that not by making the other characters more like them. A lot of times, like when, You've got these kind of group dynamics. Um, they'll have, you know, with if you take the other character away, then the like if you like when you take Ronaldo away, everybody else would become a heightened version of themselves, yes. and that's why they don't function. And that's not what happens here. They are no. already the heightened versions of themselves. Yes. They just that's such a good point. Yes. Balance each other well. It's not like when Andres hang, hangs out with Ursula more, he is less Andres. No. Um, no. And yes, this is the show, a kind of show that will have a just tangent about a mirror, mirror dimension and a like a mirror self who is or is not evil. We don't know. No. No idea. Um, just their lampooning, their indirect lampooning of the Trump administration through the U.S. Embassy is just mm-hmm. amazing. Anyway, continue. It's, it's very good. Um, so having taking Ronaldo and having him be like the the core, the heart, like he's the one who's got the vision and the drive to, to create the you know list of spookies, um, and making him interesting on his own while maintaining that delicate balance of just how heightened everyone is and keeping it all going. Um, it's pretty impressive, I think, on a character level. It is. And I think that that episode where they like lose track of one another mm-hmm. really drives that home, but not in a way that feels tired or anything. So I was, I was really happy with that. Um, should we talk about like, should we talk about Mira Estos? Yeah, probably. Um, I'm looking forward to whatever that means for season two. I don't speak Spanish, so I didn't realize that it meant uh, you have to watch. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, yeah. What do you th- What do you think? I like for a very long time. Like my partner and I both thought that the current host of Mira Estos was um, 
was going to figure in more prominently to the narrative than she ends up doing. Um, sorry for the spoilers. Um, but watching that whole like weird cult of television play out was deeply fascinating down to where do I go when the lights go out? It's just like, Oh, what are they doing to this woman? Mm -hmm. Um, so that was all really interesting, but it's also, again, it just, it feels like it fits in the show. It's a long walk to get to a setup for the second season, (laughs) but it's a good long walk. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I think it's just aggressively weird and you just need to roll with it. You get just the right amount of time in each yes. episode. And that's why it really works. Because initially you're like, why are they cutting to this? And they're like, oh, it's going to tie back. And it does. And then they keep going back to it. Um, so, yeah, it's paced really well. Definitely. Um, the element we haven't talked about yet is Fred Armisen as Tico. Yes. And yes. I've been avoiding talking about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not a big fan of Armisen because of um, allegations around him just being a a shitty person to be in a relationship with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I avoid his projects because of that. Um, just, and nothing listeners, I'm not trying to me to anyone, but just like, I avoid him because of, of things I've heard. Um, but he is very, he's, this is, the show is like the closest distillation I've seen of his type of humor that he tends to do with his characters mm-hmm. that I've seen. Um, and he's, I think he's really good as Tico. It's, it's really funny. It's just like, again, they do the whole um, Prince of the Popper thing with his valet character. And then a, um, a famous, uh, was it ob- found object artist yes, or whatever. And it feels v- completely in, in tone and in character. Um, he's just, he's, uh, he's a genius valet. That's what he does. He's he loves to, to park cars. This is his passion. He's. Very I think good about at how it. the car would want to be parked if yeah. it could park itself. Yeah, it's and again, it's just so odd and just over to the side of what you might expect. Uh, that it's it's really fun. I think it's all right. Um... Like, I agree that it's very much the distillation distillation of what he does. Um, and that comes through, I think, really, really clearly across this. Um, it's funny, but it also... Both my partner and I were, like, trying to figure out why he's in this as much as he... Tio's in it as much as he is. And the payoff for that isn't particularly good either um Mm -hmm. in part because it's a weird waste of that actor that ends up being folded in to that plot i feel like um which is not something i would ever thought i would say about that actor because that actor can kind of make anything work they can't make this work yeah um it's not believable mainly on a star image level it's not believable um so it doesn't it doesn't work in the jokes that surrounded it are the weakest part of the show um so i really struggled with a lot of the tico stuff after like the second episode i get why it's there because they want to end up doing that wedge episode um but it doesn't it the lead unlike the mirror estos thing which is a long walk for a weird setup payoff this does not achieve that effect and it's the weakest part of the show and given how much real estate it gets overall, 
Um, it's a little tough to look past it. Um, on top of that, everything in his home, his home, Tico's home life is also really aggressively weird and I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's not funny. And that's the thing. Like I, weird, but strange and entertaining is most of the show, but, um, just aggressively unpleasant, which is what the daughter is, um, is not funny to me. And so I like I for me the Tico stuff works a lot better than it does for you, um, even the stuff later in the season. Uh, but for me, I would like if there was no Tico in season two, and I can't imagine that's going to happen because he's by far the most famous person in the cast um, and involved in the you know production of the show. So uh, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I would be all for like we did we had the Tico connection so that we could get the Mira Estos thing, get things started and have the connection for the the end of the season but now that that's done let's move on from tico is kind of how i feel yeah that's how i feel as well um it's just it doesn't just doesn't sort of mean it doesn't work as well as i think they think it does um and that's really frustrating uh for me again because it's only six episodes they're each an hour and a half. So they do take up a fair bit of time. Um, well, so, yeah, they're each yeah. a half hour. Yeah, they're each a half hour. So his pre- Tico's presence and his various like plots. It adds up. It adds up in terms of taking away from other stuff that I feel like could have been devoted to like fleshing out um, Andre's uh to fleshing out Juan Carlos and his whole deal of mm-hmm. the cookie empire. Um, every listener's um, Andres is heir to a chocolate empire and his parents are trying to marry him off to the son of a cookie empire to save the chocolate empire, which is the just the most ridiculous thing. And I love it. Um, and the resolution to that is deeply, deeply satisfying. And the way that they set up that resolution is also deeply satisfying. Mm-hmm. But I would have liked more time with Juan Carlos because I think that there was a lot of satire there that they didn't have space for. And if you drop all the Tico stuff, you suddenly have a lot of space for it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I feel about it. Um, do you have uh, any other favorite spooks or moments that you wanted to mention? Just the notion of the like, the priest whose lips are too shiny and the exorcism. I enjoyed that setup in the first episode a lot. No, it wasn't that his teeth are too shining. It's that his lips are always glossy. Glossy, yeah, his lips are too. Which they overplayed to great effect when he does show up. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. I mean, it's hard not to like everything around the mirror. Like, it's really hard not to Mm -hmm. like everything around the mirror, I think, is the weirdest thing. Um, But I also do like that they managed to make the idea in the inheritance scare, which is the second episode actually work but i'm also really proud of myself for figuring out how to do that mm-hmm. um though my partner also pointed out that you would also have to replicate their suitcases um yeah. but that aside mm-hmm. um i it's just it's really delightful overall and i really encourage if you've got access to hbo in some capacity to check this out it's a great thing to watch over the weekend i think yeah and again check out the first episode if it's not your jam, it will not be your jam. Yes. <laughs> Do not stick it out hoping you'll like get the sense of it. Um, cause that it does not change. 
he's not interested in changing. So, uh, but it is delightful and silly and I did enjoy my time watching it and I am looking forward to season two. So we'll see what happens. Um, but that will wrap up our conversation on Los Spookies season one. A few show notes. You can find the post for this episode over at theteleverse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email us theteleverse at gmail.com. You can like our page on Facebook and start up a conversation there. You can find us on Apple Podcasts with an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. We're also up on Stitcher. We'd appreciate ratings and reviews either place. And of course, we are on Twitter. I'm at the Televerse, and Noel, you are? At Noel RK. Thank you so much for a great discussion, Kate. Thanks, Noel. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. <laughs>